Please turn your Bibles with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. Hope that you're uh, having a good attitude with the weather. You know, I think the Lord gives us things to grow us in holiness and sanctification. And here we're learning about joy in the midst of, of tough times. And so, you know, I think some of you may not be getting it, so get it quickly for the rest of us' sake so that we can get, get on with this nice weather. Um, we're, uh, in all seriousness, we're, we're, uh, we're excited to be able to worship together this morning. We're here in First John. So that's, uh, that's where we are in First John and, and uh, where we'll be in, in the coming weeks. And we'll, we'll finish chapter one up this morning, Lord willing, and then uh, come back to chapter two in a few weeks. Uh, and again, I, hopefully you caught this earlier, but if, if you weren't in here, just know that because of the weather, we, we did uh, cancel some, some things right after church. The newcomer's meal, we're going to reschedule that and a couple other things, so be sure to, to uh, check on things. But we should be able to do our Sunday evening service tonight at Camp Good News. That looks like it's still going to be okay, so uh, be, be, be sure to check on our Facebook page and stuff. It looks like that's going to be that's going to be good, and we're going to be able to come out this evening and enjoy the time of fellowship together. First John uh, chapter 1 verses 5 through 10, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together this morning. John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. You may be seated. May God teach and encourage us from his word this morning. Let me pray for us as we continue our time of worship. Father, thank you for your word and, and for what it teaches us this morning about who we are and who you are and what sin is. Lord, we, we trust in your forgiveness, not on the basis of who we are, even as we sang, we... we uh, all things in us call for our rejection, but all things about you plead for our acceptance. You're a righteous God who's, who's just, but is also merciful to forgive us of our sins. And we trust in that this morning. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought a lot about our, I thought a lot about my message from, from last week, this week, which means it must have been a really, really good message, right? Uh, no, I, seriously, I did think a lot about it, just in terms of, okay, if, if this is what we've said about sin and, and wrong thoughts about sin, how does this play out practically in, in my life? What are, what are my wrong thoughts about sin, and how is it influencing how I respond to God and what I think about God? And it, it, it's very very convicting for me to, to think about sin this, this past week, and I was reminded of a of a blurb from a, a book by J.C. Ryle, and his, his book is called Holiness. And he begins this book on holiness not by talking about how to read your Bible or talking about sanctification or talking about prayer. He begins a book on holiness, about how to live right before God, 
he begins it by talking about sin. The, the first chapter is entitled Sin. He says this as he begins the book. He says, Wrong views about holiness are generally traceable to wrong views about human corruption. Wrong views about what it means to live rightly in accordance with God's character and his attributes. Wrong views about that generally begin, he says, with wrong views about sin. The plain truth is that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. Without it, such doctrines as justification, conversion, sanctification are just words and names which convey no meaning to the mind. To understand what salvation is, to understand what justification is, to understand what sanctification is, growing in holiness, you have to begin by understanding what sin is. That's similar to what we've seen John saying here in in 1 John. And this is the the main idea that I I asked us to think through, that I think John is trying to help us think about as we go through 1 John. The central idea is this, and we're going to kind of put it up on the board to kind of help you if you didn't write it down last week, but how you view sin reveals if you are truly in fellowship with God. How you view sin reveals if you are truly in fellowship with God. If I am in right fellowship with God, it's going to affect what I believe about sin, how I view sin, how I propose to deal with sin, and that's going to reveal, that's going to reveal so many things about my spiritual life. As John talks about these wrong thoughts about sin, the wrong views of sin that, that people had, the wrong views that are being taught by these false teachers in the region in which he's ministering, affecting the people to whom he's ministering, as John describes these wrong thoughts about sin, the, the person who's in relationship with God is going to agree with John. Yes, the person who's a believer is going to say, I agree with John about what he's saying about sin, what's the right and the wrong way to view it. A person who's not in right relationship with God is going to hear what John says about sin and say, you know what, I I disagree. I I think it is possible for me to walk in sin and God still to be okay with me. I I think I haven't sinned. I, I wouldn't consider myself a sinner. But a person who's in fellowship with God is going to hear what John says and say, yeah, yeah, sin does affect my relationship with God. Yes, I, I am a sinner, and I have sinned. The believer is going to see what John writes here and is going to agree with God about what God says about sin. And in areas of their life where they, they fail, they're going to say, I'm acknowledging that failure, and I wish that wasn't true about me. God, please help me grow in holiness. How you and I view sin reveals if we are truly in fellowship with God. And we began last week by looking at verse 5. And verse 5 tells us this principle, God is light. That was the first principle we looked at. God is light. Verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Why does John begin here? Well, John is beginning by talking about the character of God. He's focused on this truth that, that God is good, and in God there's, there's no darkness at all. So there's this idea that, that God is our standard of perfection, and as John is going to be talking about sin, he's going to be talking about sin by looking first at God, and now sin makes sense as we understand who God is and what our obligations are to a holy God like that. As we think about this standard of God's holiness, we recognize that if you and I were going to define sin by just looking at each other, say, well, I'm going to look at that person and 
that person isn't so great, I'm better than them in some areas. If we were just going to, to define holiness by looking horizontally, we'd be in, in error in the understanding of sin we come to. We find, as we think about sin and our definitions of it, that our definition is often lacking because we don't understand rightly the character of God, that God is light. Sometimes I'm, I'm sorry if this offends some people, but I have to speak the truth. Uh, sometimes I'm forced to watch ice skating and, uh, and during the Olympics, and it's, it's not my favorite sport. So watching ice skating, though, I, I've, I've endured it, I'm sorry, watched it for many years uh, through the Olympics, and I, I've, I've felt like even though it's not my favorite sport, I understand something about ice skating. But I realized that I really don't. I was here at Five Points on a treadmill, and it was a Saturday morning, and they were showing some of the, the highlights from the, or I think they were actually, maybe it was, I don't know if it was live or, or rebroadcast, they were showing these, these ice skating routines. And I realized, without that commentator voice there saying, this is good, this is bad, see this aspect of their form, they didn't twist enough here, without that voice, I had no idea how to evaluate what I was seeing unless they fell down. I knew that was bad. If they, if they fall, that's definitely bad. There has to be a standard by which we gauge whether or not something is right or wrong. The standard we see here is God. God is light. He's perfection, and in Him there's no darkness at all. Leviticus 19 the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. There's a, a holiness that God has that his people are to have. Matthew five forty eight. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This helps us understand what sin is as we look at the character of God. One more example from uh, J.C. Ryle, I think, is, is helpful. J.C. Ryle says this in his book on holiness, again, on the chapter of sin. He defines sin this way. He says, sin, listen to this. Again, we're talking about God is light, and here's God is our, our standard of, of what, what perfection is, and that helps us understand sin. J.C. Ryle writes, a sin consists in doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. Sin, let me say that again, consists in doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. That's a much different standard of perfection than just to look at horizontally at each other. He goes on and says, the slightest outward or inward departure from absolute mathematical parallelism with God's revealed will and character constitutes a sin and at once makes us guilty in God's sight. So here's God's absolute perfection. Here's God's character and his will. And any deviation, even, uh, even ever so slight, an imagining, an action, a word that, that's contrary to God's absolute standard of perfection in his holiness and righteousness, that sin. That's where John begins here in verse 5, okay? We saw then that that leads us with some profound questions. Okay, well, 
if it's true that this is God's standard of perfection, can God have fellowship with sinful people? And if not, the second question is, what do I do with the reality that I'm a sinner? If it's true that, that God can't have fellowship with sinful people, what do I do with this, this pressing reality that I am a sinner? And then, after John kind of lays that groundwork in verse 5, he helps us think through three wrong thoughts about sin, three wrong answers to those questions that these false teachers had come up with and were influencing the people whom he loves there in Asia Minor. So, here was the first wrong thought about your sin from verses 6 and 7. The first wrong thought is that I can walk in sin and walk with God. I can walk in sin and walk with God. Now, this wasn't a denial. This wasn't a denial that sin existed. It wasn't a denial that these people were even sinful. What is a denial of? Is a denial that it affects my relationship with God. Verse 6, if we say, and this is what the false teachers are saying, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The false teachers believed that there was a material world and a spiritual world, and what I did in the material world didn't affect what happened in the spiritual world. So my relationship with God exists in the spiritual world, and so what I do in the material world doesn't affect that, that, that spiritual realm. We talked last week about how this affects our own uh, understanding sometime about sin. Sometimes we believe that, okay, I can, I can pursue materialism, I can pursue this sensual life, I can engage in illicit conduct, I can do these things, and God's okay with it. God understands I can have this relationship with God. That understanding of God is not an understanding of, of God that is presented in Scripture. In fact, a God that says you can walk in sin and it doesn't affect our relationship is not the God revealed in Scripture. That's our own imaginary God. At the point you begin to say, I can walk in sin and live in sin, and it doesn't affect my relationship with God, what you have to understand is that you have not engaged in a relationship with the God of Scripture. You've created an imaginary friend, and that's who you're in relationship with. You know, so often we, we, we engage in relationships with, with people and don't understand who they truly are, and so the relationship is, isn't real in a lot of ways. In fact, I was thinking about this as, as I was thinking about God's character and, and, and relationship. I, I was thinking about when I was in, in junior high, there was a, a young girl, and I'm going I'm to call her Carrie, uh, because that was her name. And uh, Carrie, uh, K- Carrie uh, told her friend that, that she thought that I was a very uh, nice young man. And so Carrie's friend came and said, hey, Carrie thinks that you are, are uh, quite the fella. And uh, I said, man, I feel the same way. I am quite. No. I said, yeah, so thanks. Uh, all right, she, yeah, she thinks you're funny. And I'm like, okay. And so as, as, as uh, chance would have it, as fortune would have it, we talked to each other. And I saw Carrie. And we didn't even know each other that well, but I saw her in the hall. And we talked for a few minutes. And then the next day, Carrie's friend came back to me. She said, yeah, so Carrie talked to you, and she doesn't like you at all. You're, you're not funny or nice. Okay, um, so you're saying that Carrie saw me and just liked me for my looks. 
I can live with that. I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, we, she projected this, this image. You know, we do this all the time. We project this image of someone, and we, we don't know them that well. We kind of think these thoughts about them, and so we, we think we know it. And then you get to know them. Oh, that's, that person's much different than I thought. When it comes to God, sometimes we have this understanding, okay, I, I'm going to make this God who I, and, and, and I'm going to make him in this fashion. This is what this God that I'm imagining likes, and this is what he doesn't like. And, and John says, look, if you are teaching this, if you believe I can walk in sin and walk with God, you're lying. You're lying. You're not in real fellowship with God. You're not practicing the truth. Then he says in verse 7, but if we walk in light, the light, the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's how you deal with sin is through the blood of Christ. So that was the first wrong thought about our sin that we saw last week, that I could walk in sin and walk with God. That's incorrect. Here's the second wrong thought about sin that we didn't really get to talk about last week, and that's this. The second wrong thought is that I am not a sinner. I am not a sinner. This statement is a person acknowledging that sin exists, but denying that currently sin affects them to the point where they would be guilty of sin. And listen to what the text says in verse 8. If we say, and again, this is what these false teachers would say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, in other words, I'm not a sinner, we deceive ourselves. Now, maybe you you look at that statement there, I'm not a sinner, and you say, well, wait a minute. If I'm a Christian, isn't it true that I'm I'm righteous, that that I'm a saint? Is it okay to call myself a, a sinner if I'm also a How do I deal with that? In fact, I was watching a, a, a video of a, a pastor's conference, and there on the stage were uh, John Piper and Sinclair Ferguson and Michael Horton. And someone asked a similar question. They said, if I'm a saint, is it wrong to call myself a sinner? And all the, the panelists, and these are pretty sharp guys, paused for a second as they thought about the, the right way to articulate the answer there. And they, they all agreed, no, it is still appropriate to call ourselves a sinner. As we think about these verses, let me just kind of give you three thoughts about this wrong thought and about how to approach this rightly. The first thought that I think it is important for us to affirm is that you and I are saints, okay? So as we think about this truth that I'm a sinner, I think it's also, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, it's important for us to acknowledge that we are saints. Keep your finger there in First John and turn back to the book of Romans. Maybe Romans chapter... Five. We'll begin there. And as you turn back to Romans, know that the first couple chapters of Romans are talking about how we're all sinners and we all need God's righteousness. We don't have the ability to have God's righteousness in and of ourselves. Then he talks about the provision of righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ. And then chapter 4 talks about how we receive God's righteousness, not by our works, but by faith. And then verse 1 of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith that is declared righteous, not not because of our works, but because of faith, God looks at us and says that person is righteous, not because you and I inherently are righteousness, righteous, but because we receive righteousness from Jesus by faith. Therefore, now we have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and through him, We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so currently, positionally, 
I can stand and, and, and stand in righteousness. I can say I am a saint. God looks at me and he, he looks at me through Jesus Christ. And as he looks at me, he sees not my sin, but Jesus' righteousness that has been credited to me. You go through chapter 5 and it talks about how we have a, had a sin nature through Adam. We were, we were counted guilty in Adam and now we've been counted righteous through Jesus. Then you come to chapter 6. And he's just talked about how where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So the more sin there was, the more God's grace increased. He says, well, verse 1 of chapter 6, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we, and and this is something very interesting, and i got to confess, I don't totally understand the reality of what we're about to talk about here. He says, how can we who, what? died to sin, still live in it. Wait, what? Paul, have you seen my life? He goes on. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, and he's talking about our spiritual baptism here, the time of our conversion, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin now If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Okay, now what is this talking about? What it's telling us is that our our time of conversion, this is the testimony of Scripture, the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ, there's transformation that takes place. We become a, a, a new creature. And so it's not just some fiction we make up. There's a, there's a, a radical transformation that, that takes place in our life at, at the moment of conversion. We're rege- there's regeneration that takes place. Because we believe that, it affects what we believe takes place after conversion. You say, well, okay, <laughs> if that's true, that we're saints, that we have a new nature, that we're no longer slaves to sin, why do we still sin at all? And again, I got to tell you, this is, this is hard, and you know, I've thought a lot about this, and, and I have to confess, I, I don't totally understand it, but, but here's some, some things that I think are true. I think that it's true that even though we have a new nature, the temptation to continue to live in the old nature continues until glory. Until we the resurrection. The temptation to live according to who we used to be continues. Because as long as we remain in the bodies we have now, sin still offers certain promises. There are certain pleasures that we still receive from sin. And so the temptation to continue to live in the old man continues, even though, by God's grace, because we're in this new, we have this new nature. We're not enslaved to sin any longer. The power of sin has been cut off. 
this isn't a perfect analogy, but as I was trying to think about this in, in terms of, of, of pictures, I, I thought about after the tornado. After the tornado, our house was without electricity, right? And I don't know how many of you did this as well, but even, even you know, the next day, after not having electricity for, for quite a while, I would still walk into the closet, and I would reach over to the switch, and I would turn it on. And I would, you know, Whitney and I, would, we got into this routine where we just go, ah, you know, because you keep on trying to turn that, that switch. There's no power. It's not connected to anything. There, there's nothing. But there's still that, that temptation, you know. Sin's power, there's no power for sin any longer, and yet the temptation to continue to live as if there were continues until glory. So as we think about this statement, I'm not a sinner, we do have to say, yeah, it is true that, that positionally in Christ I'm a new creature and, and, and I am a saint, and yet that's not, if, and if that were all these false teachers were saying, that'd be one thing, but that's not all, all they're saying. They're saying something more than that. They're saying there's, there, there's something within me that, is, that, is, that renders me no longer sinful whatsoever. I, I'm not guilty of sin any longer. And so that's the second state. As I think about this statement, I'm not a sinner, I think first of all we say, you know, okay, I understand I am a saint, but I think a second thing we have to consider is I am a sinner. We are still sinful there's a fundamental reality that has to be affirmed that these false teachers were denying. And that reality is, I still sin. So after Paul says all this in Romans 6, you come to Romans chapter 7. And what does Paul say in Romans 7? He talks about the reality of sin still being in his life. Verse 14 of Romans 7, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do what I for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So he's saying there's something that's fundamentally changed about me where I no longer am slave to sin, I no longer love this sin, and yet I still find myself in my flesh, desiring the benefits of sin. The law of sin, the promises of sin. The law of sin says if you do this, you will receive a certain amount of joy from it. And and Paul says, as long as I remain in the flesh, I still feel that. 18, verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh. I have the desire to do is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That is the reality for the believer. I am a saint. I, I've received Christ's righteousness, and yet I also must affirm I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm a person who continues to struggle with sin. It's a fundamental reality. And so a person who says, I'm presently free from sin, is not agreeing with what Scripture says. In fact, look at what, look at what verse 8 says. It says, if we, have no, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And, and let me just, uh, j- j- just consider the, the testimony of Scripture. Genesis 8.21, the Lord says, The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In 1 Kings chapter 8, what does Solomon say? Solomon declares, There is no one who does not sin. 
Job 4.17, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And the answer is no. Proverbs 20, verse 9, who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from sin, from my sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable things. There's no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The reality is that you and I are sinners, and if we say anything different, what are we doing? We're deceiving ourselves. The truth, John says, isn't, isn't in us. You say, okay, Daniel, uh, I get that, but how does that apply today? How are people today saying that they're not sinners? Well, there are some people who, who would just, they'd, they'd, they'd be that blatant and say, I am not a sinner, okay? There are also people who would say almost that, you know, so that's, that's heresy to say, you know, sin has no effect on my life whatsoever. There are some people who would, who would get close to that. They would say things like, you know, I, I've reached a state of, of sinlessness. And, and, they, and they define it in such a way where I don't think they're going as far as what the people in John's day are saying, but, but they're saying things that are so close as to, to lead down that same path, and I'll talk about why it's so dangerous in just a moment. But, for example, one, uh, one, one person, a famous, famous person in, in uh, Christendom from within the last, within the recent memory of the church, in the last 100 years, or so, uh, last 200 years, would say this. They, they would say, um, they, they would make a distinction between voluntary and involuntary sin. Okay, there are some involuntary sins that people are going to do, involuntary mistakes that people are going to make, but it's possible, this person argued, for a person to reach a state of, of sinlessness. In other words, they're not going to do any voluntary sin. He says, I would, call, I would not call such involuntary transgressions sin. I, I do not call them sin. One person said, Christian perfection is, is possible, a, a perfect obedience to the law of God, all right? One pastor was talking about how there's a woman in his church who was arguing that she had reached the, the state of, of sinlessness, and, and whenever she saw mistakes in her life, she says, well, those are mistakes of the head, not mistakes of the heart. Okay? It's a kind of a creative way to say, yeah, I did something wrong, but you know, I just didn't understand it. It wasn't where my heart was at. I believe that is very close to a heretical understanding of, of sin to make the claim that you've reached sinlessness. Even if you redefine it to where it's not actual heresy. It's close. You say, well, Daniel, okay, I don't struggle with any of that. I, I acknowledge I'm a sinner, so, so how, would, how would this statement be something that I, I struggle with? How would this be a, a thought that enters my mind, a wrong thought about sin? And, and I would say, even if you don't consciously think, I am not a sinner, you struggle with this 
when you engage in hypocritical, self-righteous judgment of others. Whenever you encounter the sin of another person and you believe that you've reached a state where it's shocking that that sin even exists in that other person's life and you can't imagine what a terrible human being they are. I think that's why, again, in Galatians, it, it, it warns us, you know, you who are spiritual, re- restore such a one in a, a spirit of, of gentleness, watching over yourself, lest you too be tempted. So a person who has encountered th- this statement in their life isn't a person who's necessarily saying explicitly, I'm not a sinner, but they've, they've approached other people, and as they see the sin in others' life, they're saying, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm shocked by their, by their sin. I, I never would contemplate something like that. Okay, why is this so bad? Why is this so bad? Why is, is saying that I'm, I'm sinless or I don't struggle with sin, why is that so bad? Verse 9 is the reason. Verse 9 is the reason. Look at verse 9. John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I've said that we have to, as we think about the statement, I've said we have to acknowledge, okay, I'm a saint. We have to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. We also have to acknowledge I have a great need to confess sin. If we believe that we are sinless, if we go through life with a an arrogant self-righteousness. We are failing to receive the grace that God has promised us through confession. Do you see that? The person who arrogantly says, I have no sin, is missing out on the grace that God is providing through confession. There was a friend of mine in, in high school, and uh, I lost touch with him, but, but, but found out few years after college that he had gotten into a tight situation. He had, he had been on this, this uh, little hike with his company, and he and his girlfriend were, were with the group, and they kind of went on this little hike, and it was supposed to be just a couple hours, and, and they kind of got separated a little bit from the group, and so they're trying to, to catch up, and they see this little, little trail, and so they start following the trail, and soon they realize that it wasn't a trail at all. And th- the more they, they try to get back to the trail, the, the more lost they get, And what was supposed to be just a couple-hour hike turns into a three-day nightmare. They are lost. They're out in the middle of the the forest there. They they can't find anything, and they're they're following this path. And at one point on this path, they come upon an abandoned campsite. They find a journal on the campsite, and they realize that it's the campsite of a hiker who has died out there. And his last journal entries are talking about how he knows he's going to die and he can't find civilization. And you can imagine, how do you feel when you happen upon the journal of a person who's been following the same path you've been following and is, is, is saying, I'm about to die? <laughs> Not good, right? What do you realize? You realize the path that you have been taking is not the path that's going to lead to life. My friend decided that, that he and his girlfriend needed to take drastically different measures in order to get saved, and they set a lot of things on fire <laughs> and, and, and were able to get, to get rescued, right? The person who says, I haven't sinned, is on a, on a trajectory that is going to lead to death. Something radically different needs to take place. 
there needs to be a radically different understanding of what sin is and how to respond to it. They need God's grace that's provided through confession. Confession of sin. The psalmist says in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And he talks about, the psalmist talks about, David here talks about a time where he didn't confess sin. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your heavy, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So he says, as I refused to confess my sin, your hand was heavy upon me. And then he says, then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And what happened? And you forgave my iniquity. See, sometimes people say, I, I'm not a sinner. I'm, I'm righteous. God God has forgiven me my sins. And I know positionally I'm, I'm right before God, and that's absolutely true. But, but the following statement is not true. Because... I'm righteous in God's sight. I never sin again, and I never need to confess sin to restore my relationship with God. Relationally, there's falling out that, that needs to be dealt with and only can be dealt with by confession. You say, well, Daniel, how do I confess? Do I have to, like, like bow down a certain way? Do I have to kneel down a certain way? What are the right words I have to say? How do, I, how, do I, how do I confess the right way? Let me, let me give you a couple suggestions to, to think through of, uh, about confession, things that God finds in all true biblical confession. First of all, there's, there's an intellectual agreement with God and an agreement from the heart that, that what God says is sin is sin. So that, that's where it begins. I, I, I intellectually, from my head, and, and then emotionally from my heart, I agree with God about sin. So I say, okay, God, here's your character, and here's where I am, and I agree with you that you are who you say you are, and I agree that what I've done is, is not who you are or who you would want me to be. It's not in line with your will and your character and your absolute perfection. There's a confession or an intellectual understanding of that and an emotional agreement with that. Sometimes when I'm correcting my children, there's a moment where I sense that my children just want to get this thing over with. I've caught them in something that I'm like, oh man, I just want to get back to playing with my Legos or whatever. So yeah, dad, that's ter- I am a terrible person. You know, let's go eat. And there's I have to, I have to pause things for a second. Okay, guys, um, do you understand what I'm concerned? What am I? Cor- you tell me what am I concerned about here? What am I correcting? behavior am I correcting? I don't know. That's too loud. No, no, no. The way you were disrespectful to your mother. Oh. What was disrespectful? Oh, when I, when I said this to her. Yes, that's right. I said, and then, then there's, uh, I asked for agreement. Do you agree with me that, that this is a a serious issue? Like, is this, am I being unfair to you? Or would we both agree that this is a a thing that you need to deal with? No, I I agree, dad. It's something I got to deal with. Confession begins by an intellectual and emotional understanding. I, I agree with God about my sin. 
The second component of, of biblical confession is that I tell God that I agree with him about my sin and I ask for his forgiveness. I, I agree with him. Look, God, uh, I agree with you that what you've said about my sin is true and I'm confessing to you that, that I, I need forgiveness here. We confess our sin, he says in verse 9. If, if we are saying, God, I, I'm in agreement with you regarding sin. And then thirdly, so I, I've, I've agreed with God intellectually and emotionally. Then I've told God I agree with him. I've asked for his forgiveness. And then thirdly, there's a desire I have in my heart as I confess for God to deal with my sin. That's a hard one. <laughs> I was talking with, with someone uh, this week about how uh, they and their friends kind of had a plan or an understanding of sin where if you, if you uh, had a plan for future sin, you could kind of confess that ahead of time and then be set for whenever you actually did the sin. You know, that, that's not biblical confession, right? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In other words, as you think about sin, you say, God, I'm agreeing with you that this is sin. I'm confessing this is sin. I'm asking for your forgiveness. And God, as hard as this is to say, do what it takes to deal with this sin. Because I can't. I'm a sinner. And finally, as we think about sin and, and how to confess it, sometimes, sometimes you and I need to confess our sin to other believers the right place and the right time. Other believers need to know the, the sins that we're struggling with. And it needs to be the right people, not just anybody. You know, I don't just get up here on a Sunday morning and say, hey, let me tell you about every wrong thing I've, I've thought in the last hour about you. No, uh, there, There's a time and a place, right? A person that you talk to these things about. But James would say, and James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as, as it's working. And so the idea is there's some people in my life who, who know who I am, who know everything about me, and I can say, hey, you know this thing I told you about? I'm struggling with it still. I'm struggling with this attitude. I'm struggling with this gossip situation. I'm confessing and I'm agreeing with God that it's sin, and I need your help in my life as part of the community of faith to grow in godliness in this area. Okay, now here's the cool thing. Here's the cool thing about, about what happens with confession. Verse 9, he's saying, again, he doesn't say, let me first say what he doesn't say. Let me read what he doesn't write. If we confess our sins in just the right way, you'll make it. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. That's very comforting to me. What it means is that my forgiveness is not based on the, on the nature of my confession in the sense that I have to do it exactly the right way. My, my forgiveness is based upon the, the character of God, the nature of my God, and he's faithful and he's just. Romans chapter 3, as he talks about the righteousness of God, he says the righteousness of God that you and I so desperately need, Paul says, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a satisfaction, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God brings about our reconciliation. He's still just in that he deals with sin, and yet he's also the justifier. He's the one that allows us to be declared righteous. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us for all, from all unrighteousness, John is saying. Last wrong thought about sin, and we're just going to begin touching on this this morning, and then in a couple weeks we're going to come back to this as we look at verses uh, 1 and 2 of 1 John 2, because you'll notice as you look at the text and kind of see the structure, he keeps on saying, if we say this, and here's the wrong thing, and then he says, but if, and says the right thing. In verse 10, he just says the wrong thing, the, 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 the thing that the false teachers were saying. Verses 1 and 2 kind of deal with a right understanding a little bit better. So we're just going to touch on verse 10 and then come back to it in a couple weeks. But here's the wrong thought. The wrong thought is, I have not sinned. That's the wrong thought about sin. I have not sinned. Number three. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now you say, okay, Daniel, what's, what's the difference between two and three? What's the difference between saying I'm not a sinner and saying I've not sinned? I think there's a lot of overlap, first of all. But what I think is happening is this. I am not a sinner. That's a statement that's a, that in the, the text here is, is present tense. I'm not a sinner. If we say we have no sin, that's a, in, the, in the text, he's saying, currently I, I have no sin. Present tense. No, I'm not a sinner. Right now, no guilt of sin. Verse 10, that's verse 8. Verse 10 is saying, I have not sinned. So I think what's happening here, there's a little bit of a nuance, I think. And what's happening here is, is a, a specific sin is being presented and saying, hey, this thing that you did is a sinful thing. And we're saying, no, that thing that I did in the past, that is not a sin. So the person in verse 8, the wrong teaching there, is a denial that presently I have any sin or the, the, the sin has any draw to me. And verse 10 is a little bit more specific. No, the thing that you're calling sin, I'm disagreeing with that that's sin whatsoever. It's close, but I think there's a distinction. The person is denying that, they're, that, that the thing that you're confronting them with sin is sinful at all. So here's this sin, you're saying, no, that's not a sin. It's a serious thing, right? It's a serious thing. How does this manifest itself in our lives? I think a couple ways. One is, is blame shifting, right? A person comes to you and, and says, look, here's this thing that I see in your life. And, and you say, mm, yeah, I guess technically I did that. But what happened is I was at work and my boss was being a real jerk. And because my boss was being a real jerk, that's why I came home and yelled at my kids. Or yeah, there's some issues in my marriage, and I guess, you know, I'm not saying I'm blameless, but, uh, you know, my wife, huh, I mean, she has been very difficult to live with. And so, yeah, sometimes I get frustrated, frustrated, but it's, it's what Adam says in the garden, right? the woman you gave me. Yeah, I did this, but 
shift the blame. Another way that we're guilty, I think, of this wrong perception about sin in our lives is we, we do this definitional wrangling. We say things like, okay, um, yeah, I've made some mistakes. I have some shortcomings. I haven't been as accurate as I need to be. I, I've, I've had some failings. I, I have an illness. There's, there's all sorts of words we use to describe sin that, that allow us to say the thing you're confronting me with, me with, it, with isn't really sin. That's what we saw last week as we looked at Malachi. And Malachi, the prophet, is confronting the people of Israel and saying, hey, look, you've sinned. And they're like, what? Are you sure, Malachi? It doesn't sound like us. And Malachi says, no, no, it's you. And it leads the people to say, everyone who does good, is God delights in them. Everyone who does evil, God's delighting them. And, and Malachi is saying, no, that's, that's not the case. Or we make, as we come and we say, I haven't sinned, we make excuses. And Saul, as he's confronted with Samuel because he's offered these sacrifices he wasn't supposed to, Saul's like, well, you were laid. And the people were upset. It's blame shifting. It's excuses. These are all ways in which, what do we do? We take the sin that we've been confronted with and say, yeah, it's not really sin, is it? There's definitional wrangling allows us to say, I, I haven't sinned. Let me close by reading the right understanding we're going to encounter in a couple weeks. Let me close again by looking at the first two verses of 1 John 2. First two verses of 1 John 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you. In other words, I'm exposing all these wrong thoughts about sin. Why? So that you may not sin. In other words, as he says, look, I, I know it's true that you're supposed to acknowledge you're a sinner and all that, but I'm not writing these things to you so you just sin a bunch more. I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. But I want you to know, he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he, the righteous one, is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here's why I'm telling you this stuff, John says. I'm not doing this so that you keep on sinning or say, oh, I guess I'm a sinner, who cares? I'm writing this to you so that you can turn to the one who has the answer to your sin, the righteous one, the one from whom we receive righteousness by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, and him alone. The answer to our problem with sin is to understand, yes, it is true, God cannot have fellowship with sinners, but to, then to understand that God is the one who deals with our sin by giving us a righteousness alien from ourselves, a righteousness from Christ that we receive. So that even as, as right now we, we still struggle with sin and, and still find ourselves doing sinful things, we still, God can look at us through the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, and cause us to continue to grow into more and more Christ-likeness. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus, and for his work on our behalf. We pray for your grace as we seek to be obedient to you in all things. We pray that if, if someone here has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that they would do so even today and receive a new life and a righteousness from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.